This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. Hollywood is very much heading into the holidays, um, which I think makes it a great time to talk to some stars from movies that people may need to catch up on in the coming weeks. Um, So we're going to start with you, David, and your conversation with Juliette Binoche, who is in a film that uh, premiered at Cannes under a different title, is now being released as The Taste of Things. And it's one of those movies that... May, might not have been on people's radars. They didn't know what to make of it. It's a French drama or, sorry, a French light comedy. You'll have to tell me. Um, but everyone who sees it walks out being like, wow, I loved this. Like, I really loved this. And I think Juliette Binoche has been right at the center of some of those raves. Yeah, the movie has snuck up on pretty much everybody I know. And and that's a, the big reason why is it's got a ton of heart. And I think that when you hear a movie about French cooking, in the description, it kind of delivers on exactly what you want, which is this unbelievable degree of food porn, um, but thrown in with this unbelievably tender romance um, between uh, Juliette Pinoche's character, Eugenie, who is a, a cook, and this restaurateur that she works for, um, Dodan, played by Benoit Machimel. And they have unreal chemistry. The sensuality of the food being cooked around them just adds to the atmosphere. They filmed in a castle in the Loire Valley. I don't know what else you could ask for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, you say they have unreal chemistry, but I think they have real chemistry because they know each other and have known each other in real life. Yeah, they used to be a couple. They share a child. They had not worked together in a very long time. And we talk about that. Juliet, of course, an Oscar winner, who has made a lot of very demanding, uh, particularly European movies over the years, uh, I think was uniquely nervous about walking into a project that would demand 
a really particular kind of emotional vulnerability. And then there's also just the practical question of like, how will being in love with this character feel, you know, given their history? Um, But she describes it in really therapeutic terms, the actual experience of filming with him, and particularly really credits their history with with what they bring to the movie as a as a unit. You know, this might sound gossipy of me, but I just think any actor exes who are on good terms should have to do this. Like, it is such a fascinating thing to imagine watching play it on screen. So I hope they start a trend here. I very much agree. And I think anyone who sees the movie will will join our bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear more about that in your conversation with the star of The Taste of Things, Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche, uh, you're here to speak about The Taste of Things. France's selection to submit for the Oscars this year and a a really wonderful film. Um, To start, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this movie? I knew the director a little bit because, uh, first of all, I saw his films Mm -hmm. and loved his work. And he came to see me when I was shooting uh, How Shaoxian Film, a Taiwanese director's Mm -hmm. film in Paris. And and so he came and we spoke a little bit and there was a softness in him. There was a way of, you know, his presence was special to me. It was very soft mind and, you know, so I, I liked his presence. And I think it's uh, choosing a film has to do with that because the director's going to be the one looking at you, listening to you while you're acting and, and then making the decisions at the end. Uh, for the editing. So I thought I'd like to be seen and heard by him. Yeah. He does make a beautiful romantic movie here uh, and romantic in in many senses of the word, I think. Um, As you got to talking about your role in the film and, and this relationship at the center of it, what appealed to you and what were you most excited to, to play within that? Well, the relationship to food is, of course, it reminds you of, the relationship with your mother, of yes, course. Yes, absolutely. Because that's the first, you know, breastfeeding moment. <laughs> and the need of being fed is stays forever. Yes, <laughs> you it never does. get over it. <laughs> it is timeless. But also <laughs> the, the need of love and the need of being taking of being taken care of. And then of course there's a moment it reverses because when you have kids, you have to take care of, you have to cook. You have so it's uh, there's something essential about, you know, this film in a way, because it's about food and preparing uh, for others. And but also I like the analogy between the relationship between Doda, who's the mm-hmm. who's being played by Benoit Majimel and myself, because it reminds me of uh, the relationship between a director and an actor. Hmm. You know, that is the conceptor. He has the idea of the recipe. And my character is a cook who's going to make it real, who's going to incarnate this idea. And it's very much what actors do, is that we have to you know, read, a, we read a lines on the paper that's been thought about before, and then we have to make it real and alive and truthful and vibrant. So I think that's what she does with the with the with the matter, with the with the doing yes. the cooking. But you know, while I was cooking, I was I didn't think too much of cooking. I, I felt more of a of a painting process or a sculpting process. Mm-hmm. There's something quite artistic and we call it in France uh, art culinaire, culinary art mm-hmm. because 
it lifts the matter into something special. Yes. And uh, yeah, so I like the, the, the story and I like the the challenge of it because cooking with others in in an ancient world, which is a uh, hundred years ago, even more, um, it was uh, it was interesting because uh, the director whom was very picky about being historically correct with the time in the way of um, choosing the the meals, the dishes, but uh, but also all the silverware and everything, all the details of a of a table. He wanted to be really uh, accurate. The film begins in this really stunning sequence of cooking with you, uh, and it is both very salivating and mouth-watering, but really artistic, as you were saying, and very, uh, I found it even moving. Going into that scene as an example, like, how did you find the movements and the flows of these cooking scenes? Hung, the director, was always asking me to to keep smiling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was being always happy. (laughs) But, of course, knowing that I had to play this character, I knew it was a little... Uh, more complex than that. So, because yes. she's hiding a lot of things behind. But no, I mean, th- th- together, what we did is we had to make sure that in the pace of it, we would respect everybody's, you know, pace uh, for the right cooking, the camera. So, there was a sort of a ballet thing that you have to do in mm-hmm. sequences. So, there was not a big change. Uh, compared to what I've done before, and because sequences are exciting because you have the real pace, but at the same time, you have that's why we rehearse quite a lot. You know, mm-hmm. we had a day of rehearsals before we did that shot. So, but it, it, it was not that much of a problem. Given the gastronomic specificity, let's say, of the film, did you have a level of confidence in being able to act out making some of these dishes? Or I suppose, what's your level of cooking versus what the film required? I don't think I had any difficulty in learning, you know, yeah. the the recipes. But there are some gestures, the cooking gestures you you do, you know, in like cutting or or doing those the savayon the savayon the special sauce you have to move a certain way like eight mm-hmm. doing the eight but very very quickly so it becomes like a it it, it it's like playing music really mm-hmm. and uh, that I couldn't do very well some moments I could do but it would have meant you know being a, an apprentice for for about three years which I didn't yes. have the time to do. <laughs> And anyway, Wung was not interested in seeing the obvious gesture of the actor cutting, you know, very fast, yes. uh, like uh, like uh, uh, people do in kitchens. Uh, no, we didn't need that because it, it wasn't the purpose. And also it was specific to 1886 uh, way of cooking. Also, yes. there was uh, not much of that. You know, uh, question. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious how you found the the perspective of the, of the film. I, I spoke with the your director Hung a little bit about it, and he he described it as a kind of love letter to France, his love letter. And he's somebody who came to France at a young age and who has a real affection for it culturally uh, in all aspects. Um, and there is a kind of dreamy aspect to the film in that regard, uh, especially for me as an American journalist. I'm curious how you how you found it. 
It's true. He really embraced uh, the French culture. Yeah. Through cooking, but also uh, loving, mm -hmm. you know, this area, the, the seasons. You know, we really have four seasons. <laughs> <laughs> really cold, can be very hot. And uh, all the, the this softness that you can feel also in that area of uh, of the west part of France uh, called Anjou, Lanjou, mm -hmm. and um, and also literature. The, he embraced the literature of uh, of French uh, way of measure, softness, ordered, you know, kind of way of uh, of writing or expressing oneself. So I, I see that and I'm very touched by it because, you know, he came to France when he was only eight years old and mm -hmm. and it was probably not easy for him to adapt into another language, another way of doing things. And it was probably bullied at school and and how he even though, you know, was uh, embraced, you know, the, the, the beauty of French culture. Yes. It's funny hearing you say that he he was encouraging you to smile, and I think there is a real light around your character in this film throughout. And it, it was interesting for me as a, a fan of your work, uh, and particularly a lot of the characters you've been playing lately have a, a complexity, let's say, and, a, and, a, and an intensity. Um, did this feel like a, a kind of a different key for you to play in from what you've been doing, at least of late? It's very hard to know in advance how you're going to be playing something. Yes. It's really when you're in the spot and dealing with the other actors and feeling how the director's, you know, pace, how much he allows you to go further uh, into the, you know, the, the, the takes you're doing. So it's always interesting how you have to adapt yourself. Knowing that my character was close to death, Mm -hmm. always and denying it or wanting to hide it not to hurt uh it was always interesting because there was a almost a contradiction with wanted to give life wanted yep. to give pleasure wanted to work as much as she did the exhaustion of it and at the same time knowing that it was the end soon so it was very moving actually to play that role and and the softness the long-lasting relationship that mm -hmm. I didn't play very much in films because that's not a theme that a lot of directors right. want to explore because that's uh, <clears throat> you're more into conflicts, you're more into battles or into the first love, you know, the first encounter or or the end of a, re a re of a relationship and rarely a long-lasting uh, conjugality of a of a relationship. So that was good for a change. I like that. Yeah, it's it's hard to get it right too. Even beyond the limited amount that you see a kind of relationship like that in a film, you have to have that sense of history and that sense of familiarity that I think comes across in the film so beautifully. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In terms of working with Benoit, who I know you have your, your own history with, did you find that was a big part of it? Because there is such a level of um, intimacy between these characters. Yes, of course, because that's the, that's the gift of this film in a way, is that Benoit and I knew each other. And because there was a lot of non-said things from the past, because we have a daughter together, we have... We separated and and it was not always easy. So being able to actually uh, go into another level with mm-hmm. him and express each other's love because they have this relationship, this love relationship that seems to be so smooth and 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 you know there's a softness, even though she's resisting him in a way because she doesn't want to get married, but it was very moving to be able to uh, to reconcile in that way, and also to give that film in, to my daughter, to our daughter. Yeah, it was uh, it was a big uh, gift that life gave us, I think. Yeah, and I think especially what we were saying earlier about the tone of the film is it's there's something very moving about that. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it comes across. I think it was beyond ourselves in a way. But I was very moved to be in front of him and having to, you know, to express what Hoon wrote. Because it wasn't my words. It was mm-hmm. the director's word, uh, words. And in that way, I didn't feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <sighs> well, it was not, you know, it's so hard to express what you're feeling when there's been oceans of non-said or time, you know, of... So it's finally good to find ways to uh, to say simple things, because at the end of the day, what remains is love. There's nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, at the end, if it's not love, then you failed. You know that the the real failure is not the separation. The failure is the the feelings of hate or the feelings of anger or the feelings of feelings that keeps you a prisoner. Mm-hmm. But when you're able to transform it into something free, which is love to me, it's wonderful. Mm. And I totally respect his life. You know, I, I, I'm, he's married and I'm happy the way I live. And so it's not about that. It, yeah. It's about beyond, beyond, beyond there's love. That's all I can say. Especially when you have children, because it's almost a responsibility. Yes. To find a way to love each other when you have children, because that's uh, they've got to learn that that's the that's the most important. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of working with Hung uh, on a film like this, and you've worked with so many uh, incredible directors, is there anything about him that struck you as really unique in terms of process or the way he works with actors um, that that you'll take away from the film? I love the way he is concentrated on set. He's speaking about things, you know, definitely like uh, his wife, who uh, was the artistic director and 
and costume designer. Mm. He, they work together very closely. And But I love the way he is putting his camera in a loving way. I mean, it's as simple as that, in a poetic way. He, he, he's thinking. He's thinking director. He's thinking editing. He's thinking, you know, storytelling, how to use the camera. So there's a, it's not a habit of how well he's doing things. Mm-hmm. It's a, how do I put my cam- camera to tell the story the best I can? It's really what it is. And then um, and there's an emotion that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And when I come on the set and the camera is already set or whether I was here before, it depends on, on the scene and whether I have to get ready meanwhile or what. But um, there's a connection then, you know. Uh, when I say picky, because every single glass or silverware mm-hmm. or flower, it's, there was almost a discussion of every single detail between his wife and him. So I had to be patient sometimes because, (laughs) you know, it was supposed to be my plate. It was supposed to be my glass and it became their plate. (laughs) It became their (laughs) glasses, you know. But that was interesting because I had to learn to, okay, I have to let it go there because it's really important for them. Um, So patience is part of the game and it goes with the film because there's a, a pace that goes with the film that is about being slow, uh, like uh, sitting back and living life in a different way, mm-hmm. observing things in different ways. You know, the time of tasting, the time of smelling, the time of looking, of observing life and what's around you. That's very special to that film. But what to define Hong is that he, he seems very fragile like that. And he is in a way because physically he has a cold or he has, you know, there's always going on, something going on <laughs> with him physically mm-hmm. uh, or headache or something like that. But when he says action, yeah, it's very loud and it's very present. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, oh, okay. He's saying action like that. It's important to him. Mm-hmm. And of course, it is to me because uh, it needs to be rooted in a place that is, you know, special, that is related to the need of making this film, the Mm. need of saying those lines, the need of expressing through emotions or, you know, whatever's going through. Mm. I'm curious how that slowness that you talk about matches with your style as an actor. It's, it's a kind of a broad question, but how do you, how did you find that aligned with the way you like to, you know, work through a take or anything like that? Well, I learned that because the first shot being, you know, this long cinematic flow of way of filming the food, cooking, and the different, in different temperatures, different times, timing and all. So I had to understand that, okay, He's using his camera like as a, as a brush, and he needs time here. He needs time. There. So I knew I was going into a place that it was different, mm-hmm. you know, um, and follow his pace, follow what he wanted. But yet, in the acting, you're being revealed by in in acting. So it has its own pace. Emotion has its own pace, and and you just open your your yourself, and it comes through you. So it's, I know once 
a couple of times he came to me and I, he asked me, kneeling down actually, and said to me, can you play neutral? Hmm. And I said, what do you mean neutral? And he said, well, without intention, without acting. I said, no, I can't. Can't. I'm an actress. I'm, I'm feeling. I'm, hmm. I, I cannot be nothing. Oh, if I'm nothing, it's, uh, it's, it needs to be specific. Mm-hmm. So he was a little taken aback. <laughs> also, because it was my way also to resist a little bit of what he's done in Eternity, another film he's made. Sure. Where the, the actors, the actresses were not expressing emotions that much. Mm. And when I, 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 even though I found it very interesting, this film, and I was, you know, fascinated by, by the feeling of you have at the end of it. Yep. But I was a little annoyed by the not feeling of some of the actors. Mm-hmm. So, and I thought if I'm going to be working with him, with whom, I'll give as much feelings as, as I can. <laughs> so when he came to me, it was like in me, uh-uh-uh, I'm not doing the same thing as et- eternity. <laughs> no right. way. <laughs> because I'm bringing into your world the emotions that I want you to be surprised by. Mm. And and it's interesting because I I mean the relationship it's very much like what ha- what's happening between you know uh, Dodin's character. I was Dodin's going to say yes, <laughs> and 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 me as a cook is that there's there's it needs to have resistance between mm-hmm. them in order to lift yourself into another place, into a place and an even higher place of art. Yep. And you can, of course, uh, admire each other, uh, respect each other, but you have to resist a little bit too, I think. To me, that's that's the magic of great filmmaking, is you have artists with their own temperaments and perspectives coming together and making something together. So that should happen, right? <laughs> yeah, it should happen. You're right. Yeah. I, I know you're in Los Angeles right now, and, and this film is getting a, an Oscar campaign, and I'm just curious, you've done this a few times now, let's say, of course, um, how you experience taking a movie like this around and and getting to share it and talk about it with so many different kinds of people, people from different backgrounds, um, a movie like this especially, because it is, as we say, a a real love letter in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. In life, I don't think it can force anything. Yes. Will doesn't work in that way. Life doesn't work with will in mm-hmm. that way. And I learned that because I was a very willingful girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I had to learn. And I learned at 18 years old with an um, acting teacher who broke me, literally stopped me wanting. And I, I, that's how I reached the feeling of being and more, more than acting you know, mm-hmm. proving that I was an actress. So, and I feel very much that this film is, has its own, its own life mm-hmm. <laughs> and the enthusiasm that I can feel here and in other places, it's beyond my, somehow my comprehension because it's, uh, I've done other films where, you know, it was very interesting and mm-hmm. uh, the acting was interesting as well and all, and, and was not taking as as it is for this one. This one has a little magic. And I can't I, I can't explain why. It's the it's the way it is. You have to just go with the flow that is not your will. I didn't anticipate that at all. Hmm. 
and and it, I feel like it's a gift, you know. We're all very surprised and and loving the experience because it's wonderful to feel loved, <laughs> to feel <laughs> you know embraced. Uh, yes. uh, and uh, also, this film shows uh, an old way of living, an ancient way of living that we lost in a lot of places. You know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking especially in cities because we. Mm-hmm. We we want to do so much, you know. We want to achieve so much, and 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 forget about living, forget about our senses, are very subtle, mm-hmm. and uh, we are like brutal with those senses. So this film this film allows to uh, to go back to a place uh, that we can all have. Of course, you expect that when you're older. And retired, and we have time and all that, but it's a little—it's a little sad because you could have that a little more um, in your life. It, it made me reflect a lot about my life. This film, I have to say, hmm. and that's why I, I bought a, a countryside house a year ago after this film. I think. Oh wow! <laughs> and I really wanted to have a big kitchen like that <laughs> because you know when you have a nice kitchen, you want to cook. Yeah. Yeah, because it's home. It's it's warm. It's it's where it burns. It's where it's you gather. You uniting each other again, and it's special. The pacing of that film is interesting in in regards to what you're talking about because I I associate you with someone who, who works a lot. You know, you often have most of the time have multiple movies out in a given year, and this film is about life taking its time. Well. Wait a little more, you'll see what coming. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I'm not being guilty working that much because I have passion for what I do. Yeah. Um, but I think I should take care a little more about, you know, my health in a way because you give, you give, you give, you give, you know, your emotions is really, it's burning. It's burning in you. You're really living different lives through acting, and mm-hmm. so it's wonderful. But at the same time, it's it's very demanding. Mm. But there's some kind of uh, rewarding when you're giving, yes. because it's uh, you feel alive. You feel that's why why you're here, that you were born to do that. So it gives purpose. It gives a sort of. Uh, it's okay. You you're doing what you're supposed to. Be. There's a there's a tap in the on in the, on the on the shoulder a little bit. Yes. Mm. Well, in the spirit of reflecting, as you say, um, I wonder if you could indulge me a little bit to close. Uh, this is an awards podcast, and you are an Oscar winner. Uh, it's quite a few years ago, but I'm I'm curious how you reflect on that moment that you won for the English Patient. Uh, I remember you seemed very very surprised, even by the standards of winning an Oscar. Yeah, what does it feel like now to think back to that moment? Well, a little melancholic because Anthony Minghella died. Yes. You know, we're and, you know, history changed quite a lot. Harvey Weinstein is not around anymore, and he was the producer mm-hmm. of that film. And and uh, and I love the actors I was working with on The English Patient, and so it's uh, I'm missing them in a way hmm. as well. Um, and I'm not staying in the same hotel. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not home. I'm not back home. <laughs> yes, there you go. No, um, I mean it's like um, you know. I said when I got the Oscar, I said this must be a dream. I remember. Now, it feels to me the same, actually. It must be a dream again because 
doing what we're doing as actors, traveling and talking about, you know, having so many demands on doing interviews and then the, 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 it's uh, it's an interesting feeling uh, because you do, when I'm acting, it's so internal mm-hmm. and then it becomes afterwards so external because the, the, the needs outside are so big. So public, the, yeah. Yeah, you really have to come out. Mm-hmm. And and so the experience is quite fairy tale like. Mm. Uh, so I, I have the same feeling and but it's been done with a lot of love. That's the that's the common denominator from uh from the English patient that was full, full, full of love. I feel that this film also has this quality of uh even though it was the same thing, English patient before we started doing it, if I remember well, the fox retrieved themselves like uh, uh, two weeks before shooting. Mm-hmm. And Miramax came to save yes, it. Yes, that's right. And uh, here, this film, this little film, we almost didn't do it. So there's, there's, it, it adds to the fairy tale kind of feeling yeah. that, you know, it almost was not made and, it, and we made it. So... So I, I just I'm here to embrace whatever ha- is happening, and that's the joy of it, you know. Yes. Let life do its work. Okay, Rebecca. Now let's hear your conversation with Carrie Mulligan, the star of Maestro. She is truly the star of Maestro, which I think for you know before we had seen the movie, we we're like, oh, it's a Leonard Bernstein biopic. Bradley Cooper is starring and directing. He's going to be the center of the whole thing. But when you and David both saw the movie fairly early, you were like, no, 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 this is really a movie about her, which is kind of a fascinating twist and something that. Carrie Mulligan, I think, is really uniquely suited to carrying something like that on her shoulders. So um, I imagine you guys talked about that. Yeah, we talked a lot about how Bradley uh, pitched it to her. You know, he has said he had her in mind for this role from the beginning. Um, and and even she admits, you know, that she was a little worried maybe this was going to be just one of those wife of a famous artist situations. But once she read the script, she really, um, she quickly realized that Felicia Montalegra was going to be front and center, which we've seen from ev- in everything from the posters and promotional material to the actual film. I mean, the challenges of this role are kind of myriad. There's old age makeup. There's like huge performances. There's like being part of this like musical theater world. But did she identify any one particular challenge that stood out there? Well, it's really interesting. I don't think I've had this happen in an interview before, but she said this was like the first role where she ever really like went for it as like an actor actor. Like she always felt a little silly doing like dream exercises and all that sort of stuff, you know, with her uh, co-star ahead of time. And she said she just really committed this time and it sort of like has forever changed her. So it sounds like this was a very, very significant project for her. Uh, Yeah, I really can't wait to hear more about how that uh, really remarkable performance came together. Let's hear your conversation with the star of Maestro, Carrie Mulligan. So excited to welcome Carrie Mulligan to the podcast to talk about Maestro. Thank you for being with me. Thanks for having me. So from what I understand, you're you're out and about doing Q&As uh, for the film now. So what does that feel like to finally, you know, watch an audience, watch it and get feedback out in the world? I was really, well, I just did my first Q&A for a paying audience because we've been doing Q&As for like guilds and, mm-hmm. you know, um, this is the first time that someone's actually spent their hard-earned money to come and see it. So I was really nervous. 
But it was lovely. It was a really lovely. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. The screening started. Um, and so and it was packed. So that was exciting. But it's, I love going to see a film in the middle of the day. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Fun. I saw this film a while ago, and I'm so excited that it's finally getting out there to audiences. Um, from what I understand, Bradley has said he knew he wanted it to be you to play uh, Leonard Bernstein's wife, Felicia. So I'm, I'm curious how he first reached out to you and what his sort of pitch to you was about this. Yeah, so we've sort of known each other a little bit through, you know, work and we bumped into each other at things and he'd, he'd seen me in a couple of plays um, and always been really lovely about that stuff. Um, and so he came to see a play that I was doing in New York. I was doing a one-woman show called Girls and Boys in 2018. Um, and he came to see the first preview of that. And then we met not long after that. And he, that's when he sort of first suggested. But there was no script or anything. It was just he was making a film about Leonard Bernstein, but also crucially about Felicia, about the two of them, about a marriage. That was, that was clear from the beginning. Um, but it wasn't going to be sort of the wife to the great man part that, mm -hmm. you know, we love to see. Um, so it was, um, yeah, that. And he showed me Candide, the overture from Candide. We watched that. Um, not the overture. He showed me Make Our Garden Grow, which, okay. and, and that was sort of set the tone a little bit for what it was going to be like. It's interesting because even walking into this film, I wasn't, um, I always hope that the wife role is a meaty, interesting role, but I've seen enough movies to know it won't always be that way. So when you did see the script, what did you sort of realize about what the story is that they wanted to tell? I think he was he was really clear. It was about a marriage. It wasn't a biopic, you know. I mean, it was the, the music was the sort of power of the film that, you know, there was this incredible setting for this story to unfold in, but it wasn't... It wasn't going to be, and then he did West Side Story, and then he did Candide, and then he did On the mm -hmm. You know, it was going to be about the choices he made in his life, both artistically, but also within his relationships. Um, and 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 he said, actually, early on, you know, when people talked about Lenny, they didn't talk about Lenny, they talked about Lenny and Felicia. So they were mm -hmm. always talked about as a pair. And so when I read it, it tracked with everything we talked about, that it was going to be really about them both as artists. Because it's really also, you know, it, it, what I found so fascinating about it was this idea of these two artists meeting, you know, at a young age. And, and at that age, she was more successful than he was. You know, she, she was more famous by a long way. Um, and, you know, was really sort of starting to have a proper career as an actor. And, and then he had this sort of unbelievable overnight success where he stepped in and conducted a Carnegie Hall and became like an overnight sensation. And, and then obviously it, it, there was a huge imbalance. And I thought, what would that be like to be two artists who are in a relationship together, one of whom is basically, you know, a good actress, maybe, maybe could have been a great actress, and then one who is this once in a generation, fated everywhere he goes, you know, genius, um, and what that must have felt like for her. Yeah. Um, tell me about where the research began for you once you had signed on. Well, the first thing that I got from Bradley, because early on I figured, you know, we both realized that the dialect was going to be a huge, um, mm -hmm. huge part of it. But that needed to feel completely, you know, easy and not something we were reaching for or something that felt like sort of uh, acting. So um, we had access to these tapes uh that were, so John Gruen was a writer who went and spent a summer with him in Italy um, 
in 67. And he wrote a book called The Private World of Leonard Bernstein. And he interviewed them, all of them, and Shirley Bernstein. Um, and there's there's also recordings where you can hear the kids. Like he spent the whole summer interviewing them about every aspect of their lives. And so we've got about, there's about two 45 minute long interviews just with Felicia on her own that are really insightful. Um, as much for what she says as for what she doesn't say. Um, and the way that she talks about her devotion to Lenny, but also the way that she keeps it all kind of at arm's length in a way that she can walk away from it. You know, she's kind of got the power of the way that she talks about the relationship. So those tapes were fascinating. And then, the, you know, the family just gave us access to everything, to home videos, to pictures, to we went and rehearsed and shot the film in their home. Mm -hmm. um, I wore her clothes. Um, they gave me her lighter, her cigarette lighter. Um, and then and then a couple of months before we started shooting, I decided that I, I needed to sort of go to Santiago to see where she spent most of her childhood. Oh, um, wow. so I asked Jamie to connect me with any family there. So, um, and they were, they're very close to, to the family, um, in Chile. So they introduced me to Felicia's nephew and I went to Chile and, um, met the wider family there, saw the school she went to, you know, so the more we found out, the more we wanted to find out. It was kind of, I feel like we could just, we, we, you could, you know, it's a person's life. There's it's sort of limitless, um, if you have access of what you could learn about that person. So we just did yeah. as much as we could. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. I did an interview with Jamie um, Bernstein, uh, their daughter, a while back. And, you know, she had said that, you know, they've been protective over their parents' legacy, obviously, but it sounds like they really were excited that their mother would be captured in this um, as well. Did that add any extra pressure for you, sort of realizing that, that was so important to them? Yeah, I, definitely. I mean, I think, I think that was what was... You know, what, I think when Bradley first said, "I want to make a film about your parents," I think they quite they didn't quite even believe it because you know the the obvious assumption would be that it would be a biopic of Lenny. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I certainly felt the. I remember the first time I met them in person, and they already knew that I had the job, but that you know, and I, and of course Bradley had sort of you know run everything past them and talked to them about it. But the first time I actually met them, we went to. Bradley and I went and narrated Candide in Philadelphia with the Philadelphia Philharmonic. And on the last performance, they came and they came backstage afterwards. And I remember I remember seeing them coming down the corridor and thinking, well, this is the moment that you're going to meet the person that's playing your mum. And, you know, that the, the sort of um, oh, the trepidation of that. But they were unbelievable, like huge hugs as if I was already family. And um, And so from then on, I felt, I don't know, I just, the, the, they'd always sort of, the way they responded to makeup tests and the way they responded to anything, they were always, they they kind of couldn't believe that we were, I think we, because we were trying really hard, we did so much work to try and understand them and do them justice. I think they appreciated that. So I think as long as we were, you know, showing our workings in how we were getting to these characters, and I think 
it felt all right. And I, I've, I really wanted more than anything for them to feel that we had done them justice and that I'd done Felicia justice. Um, but I only felt support. I didn't feel like they were kind of testing me ever. They always felt like they were just like part of the team that was backing us to do it. Yeah. You've played real people before and it's obviously this balance of never doing imitation, but, you know, getting the character right. When it comes to someone like Felicia, how did you manage that balance? Is there a point where you have to say, okay, I know all I need to know and now I have to really just step into playing it my way? Or are you always thinking about um, the real person? I think in this case, I was always kind of thinking about her because as it went on, I was still... I remember a couple of weeks into shooting, we were doing this stuff where she's, we were shooting the theatre scene where she's, you know, talking to him about how she's, you know, she, he says, if fear's getting in your way, and she said, well, if fear was stopping me, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be standing in front of you. And at the time, I'd ordered a bunch of her playbills off eBay and found mm -hmm. all her original playbills. So those were arriving in my house and I was kind of looking over those and looking at the other cast members and thinking about the people that were on stage with her, one of whom she, you know, fell in love with and had a relationship with. It's, you know, not really explored in the film. We, we do mention him. And and I was reading her theatre reviews, you know, um, a couple of which were nice, a couple of which were a little bit sort of, you know, slightly scathing, slightly, you know. So, so there was kind of always stuff to feed what we were doing at the time. Um, but yeah, certainly not not an imitation. I think I felt kind of there were we had stuff in common. You know, there were things that I kind of understood about her um, innately, and I felt very comfortable once I had sort of worked on her voice. I felt very comfortable in her voice. Um, but no, it was kind of a constant. You know, we were still finding things. We were still being sent things. We were still getting you know new references the whole way through. So it never really stopped. Um, you know, in terms of the research stuff, that kind of kept on staying part of the process the whole time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I can't help but notice that you're an actor. She was an actor. You're married to an artist who is also a musician. Um, what else did you sort of easily relate to her her situation? With? I think there was a bit of the. Um, well, there were two things. So there was that, that, you know, she had this sort of proximity to someone who could command a huge amount of people, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I've stood, you know, at the side of stage at Glastonbury and watched Marcus play to 100,000 people and is yeah. kind of, you know, it's it's a real, it's something to see that. Um, and it's quite hard to put yourself, you know, the most I've played to, I've played to a theatre of about 1,000 people, but, you know, this is... 100,000 people singing singing the words that you've written. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I can't I can't imagine what that's like. So, there was that sort of standing in the wings that I could relate to and all the feelings that go through your your heart and your head when you're watching the person you love, you know, doing that. And and there's a great bit in the interview where she's talking to Gru and he says, "What do you do backstage uh, at all of these things?" And she sort of basically implies that lots of women sort of flutter around mm. trying to get his attention and yeah. being annoying. She says um, she basically finds a corner and then she says uh, a great deal of waiting, a great deal of smoking. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought like, that's familiar, that sense of like this is the most exciting night of someone's month or year that they're coming to see this show and you've been on tour for a month and you're over <laughs> it. And that I, I was like, oh, I remember what that felt like when I used to go on tour a lot before I had kids. Like, you know, everyone would be like, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. We're backstage at blah, blah, blah. And I'd think, oh, when can we go to bed? 
Um, lovely. I've seen the show. It's great. I love my husband, but, you know, my goodness me. Um, and so that, that bit. And then there was another side of her that was really interesting to me in terms of her work as an actor, because she talks in this tape. So John Gruen is a friend as well, and he's saying to her, this is when she's sort of given up her career largely pretty much completely um, to be a, to be his wife and to be a mother to their three children. And he says, you know, you really should return to acting. And she sort of tries to brush it off. And he said, but you were so good, um, but you never gave yourself a chance. And she says, well, I never gave myself a chance. I was always kind of half in, half out. Um, and she talks a lot about how she didn't really ever, you know, there was never, she never really kind of went for it. You know, she never kind of, she was really, really critical of the actor's studio. She thought it was kind of bullshit and kind of ridiculous. And she was much more comfortable with a sort of European approach to theatre. She thought the American approach and all kind of um, people writhing around on the floor pretending to be animals. She thought that was sort of ridiculous. And, and and I think probably what she felt really was embarrassed and that she, she, I think part of her probably would have loved to have been able to do that stuff and be part of that community but she felt kind of on the outside of it because she wouldn't quite, you know, she was, she had such poise and such reserve. I think there was a part of her that could have really done with just letting go. And, and, and when I, when I heard that, I thought like, that's, I know what that is. You know, I've, I've, I never went to drama school. I didn't get in. Um, but I definitely felt there were times when I sort of have watched other actors sort of really committing to something. And I thought like, all right, that's a bit, you know, a bit, kind of a bit embarrassing. But actually, on some level, I've been thinking, oh, I wish I could do that because I feel like I'm too, I'm too English and too embarrassed to actually do all of that stuff, like keeping my mm -hmm. dialect in between takes and really kind of... Uh, and then on this, Bradley was like, you should, you know, you should know that if, it, you know, I want you to do this, but I really want you to go all in. And I remember talking to Kim Gillingham, who's my sort of teacher, but, um, and she said, you know, you don't really think of yourself really as an artist. You think of yourself kind of as a farmer, you know, because I live in the countryside and, you know, and then I occasionally go and make films and I come back and I completely shed that thing. And she's like, you are allowed to be an artist. You know, you don't need to be a farmer. And she said, what would happen on Maestro if you actually tried? And she said, and you don't try and be a farmer and you just try and be an artist. And and so we wrote it down. I wrote it down in my little Felicia book. And I said, what would happen if I actually tried? And then I, from that moment, sort of decided to do all the stuff that I had mm. kind of always been nervous of. Um, and and I loved it in the end. And it, was, it felt like sort of second skin. It didn't feel weird or embarrassing at all. But um, it was a, there was a real connection with Felicia. I thought, like, I know what that is of being slightly held back and not wanting to sort of let everything go wow that's really yeah interesting so we did have stuff in common yeah <laughs> yeah do you feel like you'll do that again or this has changed how you approach the next I thing i think or? so i mean it's funny i did a little job over the summer like a two weeks on this little british indie comedy and did none of that like just waltzed in had a great time waltzed off um i just had a baby so you know it was more like a thing i really wanted to do but it wasn't you know, and it's, I'm very much a supporting in and out mm -hmm. um, thing. So I didn't do any of that work for that film. Um, but I think, yeah, largely that will be the way that I want to. I mean, it's horses for courses, though. It's like depending on what you're doing. Um, I did like two days on Saltburn playing mm -hmm. Poor Dear Pamela. I yep. did not do a dream workshop for Poor Dear <laughs> Pamela. <laughs> um, I very much invested in the hair and makeup fittings, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go and research um, 
poor dear Pamela's back backstory. But I think, yeah, probably on the whole, that would be the way that I'd like to work going forward. Well, you mentioned the dream workshops, and I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about how you and Bradley created the bond between these two characters, because it sounds like there were a lot of there was a lot of time spent to make sure that you got that right. I yeah. don't even know what a dream workshop is, but so no, tell well, me about it. Neither did I, really. But actually, <laughs> my teacher, Kim, does, you know, she's trained. This is what she's sort of trained in. So it's essentially sort of you basically record your dreams. You wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night, whenever, and you try and write down your dreams. Um, and then you bring them in to the workshop. And it's just it was just me and Bradley and Kim. And then you sort of tell each other, describe them. And then as you're describing them, you sometimes assign a kind of gesture to one of the things or feelings that happens. It's essentially trying to figure out why your subconscious is bringing that dream to you and does it connect to the work that you're doing on screen. The whole thing, the long and sounds so hippie, but the long and short <laughs> of it is that you're basically trying to connect your subconscious to the to the material, to the script, to the character, so that when you get on set, lots of things just happen without you having to think about them. So lots of mm, sort of mm -hmm. the things that just are, you two are connected in some way. And then in the process, there's a lot of soul bearing and a lot of crying. And as you can imagine, um, and it just makes you closer. You know, if you just sit around crying with someone for a week, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, and then at the end of the week, you you do a kind of, you put on this like mini sort of performance art thing where you, you know, usually to music, you kind of come up with a little kind of sort of mini 20 minute kind of show thing that kind of connects everything that you've thought about that week. Um, and, but it w within that week, that, that sort of thing of us sitting back to back, that was where that mm -hmm. started. So that in the middle of one of the workshops one day, Kim said something which she wanted us to talk about something she was like why don't you just sit it might be easier to sit back to back than look at each other so we sat back to back and and then when it came to filming Bradley wrote it in so that we could because it was just such a kind of brilliant metaphor for their relationship that one of them would lean heavier on the other at different parts of their lives and um so yeah it was like that I've, I've never done it before um and I was absolutely terrified to do it because I thought it sounded yeah. mad um, particularly the last bit where you have to create this little bit of performance art, but it was amazing. And, I, and if nothing else, although I do think it gave us a huge amount, by the time we had done it, we were like unbelievably close. And that I think just went straight into the film. But you're saying this is not going to be on the DVD extras. <laughs> Sadly not. No cameras allowed. There's no record of that time. Um, no, but that was, that was the coolest thing as well, that it was like, you know, it wasn't other, we took a whole week in the pre-production schedule, just Bradley did nothing but this, you know, he had so much, all his directing prep and writing and all that kind of producing stuff. And he just stopped all of that. And we just did just Lenny and Felicia for a full wow. week for eight hours a day for six days. And it, and I think it just all went into the film. And, you know, obviously a part of this story is their unconventional marriage. And how did you sort of come to grips with you know, the choice Felicia made to be aware of the fact that he had other, you know, loves and interests outside of their marriage. I mean, I think she was she was crystal clear from the beginning with it. Um, and I think from when they had met, they just felt like there was sort of inevitability that they would be together. Um, I mean, you can read her letter. There's, a, there's an amazing book, actually, of all of his letters, so all of his correspondence. Lots of letters to him and maybe not as many that he's written back, so maybe they didn't, he didn't 
they, they couldn't get a hold of. But there's a you know huge big book of letters, and in that, lots of letters from Felicia and, and vice versa for him back to her. And in one of the, these letters before they get married, she says, "You are a homosexual and may never change, but I believe you know something along the lines of I can we can make a marriage without me sacrificing myself as a martyr." on the altar of LB. So she was very clear, like this was, she knew what she was signing herself up for. Uh, and that, 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 and in the letters, sort of a sense that should he have to limit himself from not having these relationships with men, that that would be kind of fundamentally altering his character or his, you know, his sort of joie de vivre would be kind of dampened by not being, and she wanted him to be fully himself. Yeah. Um, so that that side of it was was clear and and you know I think in that time uh, uh, when she was at age absolutely she believed wholeheartedly that that she could manage that um, and I think just as time went on that became more difficult um, but I think that the the fundamentally it wasn't really about sex or infidelity you know that they sort of split I think it was that you know she had become she had been if, if, throughout all of it his you know, muse, mentor, lover, best friend, confidant, the one that he went to the, when he was terrified, the one that he would look to in the wings, he'd come off, he'd go straight to her and then he'd come back on stage. And that was sort of, you know, we see it in the film over and over again, but that, you know, she was that person to him. And there can only yeah. be one of that person. There can't, even if you have a manager or an agent or whatever, like there's only one person like that. And she was that. Um, and, and then she wasn't. And I think it was that betrayal that you know he could it could sleep with whoever but it was about this place being usurped by somebody else yeah so when you signed on uh a star is born had not come out no is that right so bradley cooper the director had not come out i guess yeah. is what i would say yeah how would you sort of describe him in that role as a director oh man i mean yeah i, I i've never had an experience like it i mean it's it's I think he said, he said, he definitely said it to Matt Bowman because Matt's been talking about it. And I feel like he said something along the same lines to me. He said, if you do this film, you'll never feel yourself acting. <laughs> and Matt and I were both like, what? <laughs> um, okay. But, but you know, I, I, I understand what he means, you know, because he, he created an environment where there was, a, a lot of it felt like theatre. A lot of it felt like, and there was never that, he, what he would do a lot was, well, first of all, I would come on set and he would be Lenny already. So he would get, he'd get ready. He'd be Lenny by the time crew call started. Okay. So he'd come in at two in the morning, three in the morning, depending on how long his makeup was. So by the time I got there, he was all already fully looked like Lenny. He was in the dialect. He was chain smoking, you know, so I never really sort of, I hardly saw him as Bradley through the whole thing. Mm. Um but also every scene would start with improvisation that very rarely would we start with the actual lines of dialogue that were in a script so that it wasn't that thing of sort of, and there was no sort of big, loud kind of calling action. It was all like you just sort of walked on set and it sort of started shooting. So there wasn't a lot of that kind of film structural kind of noise that make you, I think makes actors kind of slightly shrink into themselves and become... So it just felt like you walked on set and suddenly someone was talking to you and you were talking to them. And then maybe a couple of minutes later, you'd be saying something that was in the script and then you would carry on with that. So in that sense, I think he was right that he did make it that. Yeah. And you could you could he wanted ideas. He wanted people to bring stuff in um, like the first 
scene of us and Tanglewood where we're sitting back to back and that big crane shot comes in and finds us on the floor right before we did that. He said, we're going to be sitting back to back and I want you to think of a game. Um, and so I thought of this game that I played with my brother when we were kids where we would try and have a psychic connection. We would look at mm -hmm. each other in the eyes and, you know, I'd be like, I'm sending you a number between one and 20, one and 10, whatever. And then he would sort of try and like get it from me and we'd have to sort of build up a strong connection to do it. So we played that game and that was, you know, we just improvised that and that was you know, what he, and then we did that and he was like, done, moving on. You know, so he knew the essence of what he always wanted, whether it was scripted or like improv here and there. Um, and it did feel like, you know, we shot the Dakota scene, big party. We had two cameras going and everyone was talking the whole way through. So he was talking to Shirley. I was talking to Mendy and Cynthia. There was no concerns about overlap. We just act, you know, and so the, these scenes would run concurrently and then he would cut and then he'd come in and, and ask me how it went. And, you know, so it was just a sense of things were being captured without us having to sort of perform in a kind of conventional sense. And that, I think, is what made it feel kind of live. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It was, it was an amazing way to work. Oh, Interesting. And there was some sound mixer crying in the corner during the well, party the sound scene. mixer being a genius because because this was <laughs> yeah. all kind of this was all kind of uh, condoned, which you know usually if there's any kind of overlap you get immediately scolded or someone yeah. comes and says, "Can you do one where you don't?" And you think, <laughs> "Oh," um, but this time Steve had figured it out. Like he knew how to do it. I mean, I did no ADR for this film. Oh, wow. I did probably a couple of lines on my iPhone in the cupboard. Like Bradley would be like, can you record this and just send it to me? And I'd go into the cupboard and lock myself away from my children and record it on my iPhone five different ways and send it to him. And that was always <laughs> in the film. But I never went into a studio to do ADR. So all the, whatever Steve did, some sort wow. of genius. It was, yeah, amazing. And we're almost out of time, but I wanted to end on what you think Felicia might have thought of this. Her kids have said she was obviously the more private of the two and and, you know, harder to know, but... Do you ever think about what she might think about her story being out there now? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote to her before it started because I, I felt just a nice, polite thing to do. So I wrote her a little letter saying, like, you know, I hope this is all right. And, um, you know, and I'm not particularly sort of, well, I don't know, but I wrote it. And I just said, I hope this is all right and that we really love your family and we want to, you know, and we really love you and want to make a... Uh, a sort of tribute to, to you guys and to your family um, and I think it is that I mean I think the biggest sense that I have from it is the sense of sort of family and love you know there, there was lots of tragedy and there was lots of sadness and lots of hardship but there was I think that was far outweighed by joy and um, and kind of beauty um, and I think it is a film about artists um, and the beauty of artistry and how we can bring that out in one another. And um, so I think she would have, I hope she would have been happy. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday with a roundtable conversation. And then uh, we will have another interview episode next Tuesday, December 26th, and then take a little bit of time off before the new year starts. Find us in the meantime at vanityfair.com. Email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. We would love to have all your emails waiting for us after the break. Find us on social media at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.